Buyers' agents are in hot demand at the moment as anxious house hunters attempt to gain an edge in a rising market. But how do you choose a good one? We can only take payment from the consumer, so from our client. We don't take any kickbacks or payments from any other source. And the reason why this is an important thing to state is there are people out there who call themselves buyer's agents or they suggest they give free investment advice. And the reality is that they're working for someone and they're selling stock off a stock list. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Regular listeners may have heard me rant about the low barrier to entry to a career in real estate in general and my belief that buyer's agents should have to clear a higher bar than that which is set for sales agents. One bar that only a portion of buyer's agents choose to clear is membership to Australia's only national association of exclusive buyer's agents. Today we're joined by the president of REBA, that's the Real Estate Buyer's Agents Association of Australia, Melbourne-based buyer's agent Kate Bacos, and we're going to give you some tools to help you sort out the from the chaff. Thank you for joining us, Kate. Always a pleasure. I love coming on your show. Kate, great to, great to have you on. I guess it'd be interesting to start about a bit of a history on, you know, buyers agents or buyers advocacy, I think they call it in Victoria. But, you know, what, sort of where did it really start and, you know, what portion of agents are really out there versus sales agents? Yeah, it's a great question. Look, I think that a lot of people will lay claim to being the first or one of the first. I certainly know that 20 years ago, it wasn't a concept that was mainstream, but there were buyers agents out there 20 years ago. And the reason I know that is I did a, a bit of time in my early real estate days as a, a selling agent in a real estate office. And we had a few buyers agents that would contact us to see properties. And I was a little bit intrigued and it it was not something that the consumers broadly knew about. And I think back then it was fair to say they were more for the, you know, the rich and famous and for the time Mm. poor people. And it was before a real focus on picking quality assets and getting good quality investment advice was, was something that we talked more about. So they have been around for a long time, but as we all know, we've seen a little bit of a proliferation of the number of people calling themselves buyers agents out there. And I think it's really important to be able to distinguish someone who's got the, the right training and the right experience and, and the ability to add real value and protect the consumer versus someone who's doing it because they enjoy dabbling in property or they like houses. And and there's a lot of shades of grey here, but you know, there's a lot of reasons why consumers need to be really savvy about picking a good buyer's agent. And have you got any idea of like how many are really out there? I mean, obviously there need to be some registered in different states as real estate agents, I guess. Um, yeah. You know, how many call themselves buyer's agents versus how many real estate agents there are? Have you any idea? Yes, and we don't have a, a super firm idea only because we have different legislation in every state and some states have, have different barriers to entry and we've also got a, a few buyers agents who are doing a course in one state and then coming straight back into their state and, and avoiding a few different requirements. But in short, we've about five years ago we had just over 300 registered buyers agents in the nation and now it would be fair to say there's there's way more registered than that if we look on the the portals for each state and territory you can see there how many uh, real estate agent licenses are issued but in terms of of accurately pinpointing how many people are are working full-time as qualified registered insured buyers agents I think it, it has to be somewhere around the the one to two thousand mark in our nation mm. and real estate agents I guess are probably I don't know 50 times that sort of thing I think even huge. more than that Chris I, yeah. I believe that we've got over 70,000 real estate yeah. agents in Australia which is amazing so you've got maybe say you know three to five percent of maybe the 
sales, I guess, potentially, if there were one for one, could be going through buyers agents. Do you think that's around the amount of sales that are actually going through buyers agents? It's a good question. I, I think probably not because we've got some that are doing it full time and have teams behind them. So volume will be a, a lot more noticeable for businesses like that. And then we've, we've probably got buyers agents out there that might not be doing any more than five transactions in a year if they're part-time and dabbling Mm. so it's a tough one to measure and there are some locations where a buyer's agent is almost unheard of and and not mainstream but certainly in our busy capitals the the agents who are active in those capital cities will talk about Mm. the, the number of deals that they'll have where buyer's agents are involved every now and then an email that's they've accidentally included everybody's email list on on that email, the agents. It's so a terrible <laughs> heart-stopping moment where you're meant to put everyone in BCC. BCC, yeah, they're all Oops. in CC and that's quite yeah. quite funny. But it's actually this is interesting because I was literally talking to a client yesterday who we bought for last week and she said, oh, you know, there's this buyer's agent out there that's really nice and she's really smiley and she's really friendly and she's at every open house that we went to. And this particular client had been super active before they engaged us. They'd been at every, they were looking at absolutely everything. I mean, obviously they were highly interested. And so she was, at first she said, and at first I thought the fact that I saw her every time an agent told me about an off market, and I also saw this same buyer's agent at every inspection that I was at. At first I thought, wow, she's got, you know, she's so busy. She's right in there with the agent. She's hearing about everything first up. You know, she's right on the pulse when it comes to off markets. And she said, and then I realized when I met you that most of this stuff is not worth looking at. Yes. <laughs> and so you sort of got to be picky. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, hello. But it was just funny that how that whole, um, no, I don't know why I started telling that story. Was I love it story? though. <laughs> or if, you, if you've got enough spare time to go to every mm. ridiculous, mm. overpriced, lofty off market, <laughs> you're not busy enough. It comes value add though, doesn't it? And what people expect of a buyer's agent. But I just, I honestly can't remember why I started telling that story. But, <laughs> but you know, you hear all the time these expectations of what people expect a buyer's agent to do and add value. Yes. And, and I think oh, I can remember why I started the conversation now. And the other comment she said, she spoke to an assistant of a sales agent who said, oh, we would put about probably 20% or maybe even 30% of our off-market sales through that particular agent. And we also get access to all of that agent's off-market stuff. And I will say this agent is not a member of Reba. We get access to all the same stuff and we wouldn't touch most of it. Yes. And, you know, it's horrific to think that, you know, these relationships, you talk about, you know, how many product properties are actually bought through a buyer's agent. Then you add another layer and say, how many should have been bought? Yes. By, by anybody, let alone a buyer's agent. You know what I mean? It's, it's actually a bit of a scary thing. So we're sort of segueing and I'm, and I'm acting, I'm advocating for the case of not using a buyer's agent right at the minute, even though I am one and you are one. And we're talking about how to choose a good buyer's agent. So let's get stuck into that. <laughs> well, I think to your point, Veronica, it, a lot of people ask the wrong questions when they're looking at the value proposition of a buyer's agent. Yeah. And I'm often asked by someone, how much of a discount would you typically get? Well, th- yeah. that's a very, very tough question mm. to answer. The real question should be in a, in a flat market, a stable market, what sort of percentage discount do you feel you can get from your appraised value? Because the thing about measuring a discount is you can't repeat an auction under the same conditions. It's a, it's a one-hit wonder. That's it. You get one go to see how that auction unfolds or a negotiation for that matter. So the, the point of anyone saying, I could get this kind of discount or I regularly think mm. I can negotiate to this level, it's, it's not the question that people should be asking because I would rather pay market value for an A-grade yeah. asset than get a B-grade bargain every yeah. day of the week. Yeah. I mean, that was one of my questions, Kate, was, you know, some of these worrying marketing flaws or sales tips that buyers agents use. And one of those is, you know, average client savings mm, or we yes. saved our money clients 50000 on that property. And I'm like, well, how do you actually know that? Because, you know, and really are you just paying market value because you, or have you really actually negotiated better than, and it's, it, yes, there is some circumstances where you potentially, the client was willing to go a lot further than you allowed them to, I guess, and you stopped them getting too emotional. Or maybe it was a bit of inside information that you got. But 
there's always these sort of worrying marketing flaws I think buyers agents sometimes use. Like yes. we buy really fast. All our clients buy within two weeks. Mm-hmm. I just think is that really something you want to be telling people? Like what are some of the things that you think, you know, people engaging buyers agents need, need to be worried about, I guess, that sales pitch? Yeah, so I think you should be worried about anyone who's, you know, selling proposition is how many off-markets they're privy to. <laughs> yes. that's, that's the first one because there's two kinds of off-markets. There's opportunistic off-markets and then there's situational off-markets. The situational ones can be great because vendors got themselves into a situation and you might be able to create a win-win by having the right settlement terms or it's the right match. But the idea of going for an opportunistic off-market, that's a massive waste of time and that's a, a vendor in a hot market who might turn around when the deal is just starting to come together and decide to take it to auction. So, you've wasted all of that time and you've got lost opportunity to contend with. Mm. So that's the first one I avoid, any promise of off-markets because that's only a small part of the value that we bring in. And again, not every off-market is a good off-market. So it's it's the stuff that we say no to. I, I talk about the John West principle. It's the fish that John West rejects that makes <laughs> John West the best. I like being John West. And, and if that means that a client is with me for three and a half months and not two mm. weeks, well, if that's the right solution for the client, that, that is exactly what that proposition is about. Yeah. So I think that when asking what value a buyer's agent can deliver, you can look at the experience and how they made you feel and how involved you were in the journey and what sort of education you got out of the experience and how protected you felt. Mm. You can't really measure their success though until a few years down the track. You're going to sell it. <laughs> That's right. Or I, I look at the auction clearance results and the auction results every Saturday night. And it's not just to keep up with values. It's to look at all of those results and recall all of the clients that I've placed over the years in those streets and surrounding areas that the, these values um, play a part for in terms of underpinning the value of their property. I want to know how past clients' properties are, are tracking and I want to be able to have that conversation if they call or give them the good news if they didn't realise the one around the corner broke a record. Here's a good one too. What's your auction success rate? At the moment, it's it's around 25%. Yeah. Um, and do you know what? I've, I say to my staff, don't lose hope uh, and, and feel despondent about that. In a hot market like a market that we're in right now, my feeling is if you're if you're getting an auction success rate above 50%, you might be either picking mm. low-hanging fruit properties or paying too much. Yeah. There's no perfect formula because sometimes we get lucky, but it's harder to get lucky in a hot market. So if, you, if you're getting less than 20% success rate, you could have bad luck on your side or you could be dealing with comparables that are too dated and not having that honest conversation with your client. I guess I'm one of the other things I notice is that a lot of buyers agents promise to, to help everyone and I don't, nothing against them starting out, it's really tough in any industry to say no to people, especially in those early years when you've got, you know, put food on the table yeah. and pay for, for other, you know, offices and all those sort of things. But how does that sit with buyers agents that sort of buy all over, say, cities or even interstate we see quite often and whether that really aligns to actually being a real successful trusted buyers agent? I think that it's really important to know what your niche is and to to choose what your specialisation is and, and do it really, really well. And if that means just servicing owner-occupiers in one side of town or if that means just looking at the multi-million dollar properties and dealing with the rich and famous or if it means targeting coastal areas and being great at picking holiday homes, whatever your niche is. I'm, I've always been a believer in, in being intimate with an area when you're selecting property, particularly if you're selecting property for, for long-term future growth potential, you know, that's investment advice. And I, I think if you're going into multi-states, you need to be very, very confident that you know those areas in those other states intimately because if, if you're competing with local knowledge who's very skilled up and investment savvy mm. and you're not intimate, you you could be making mistakes. So I've, I'm a big believer in sticking to your lanes and knowing what you're great at, but I've seen some people do it very, very successfully interstate when they've had a specific type of property that they specialise in. It's a good one because there's a chat room, obviously, in the REBA uh, membership group. And one of the sort of recurring themes that comes up very regularly is typically Brisbane-based buyers agents whinging about interstate buyers agents buying 
crap basically on the outskirts of Brisbane and yeah. for investor clients. And it's a, it's a, and this is the thing, it's like the chicken or the egg, isn't it? So the buyer's agent says, okay, you want to buy in Brisbane? Sure, I'll go and find you something in Brisbane. Or the buyer's agent actually advises their client to say, look, you know, where if you want to buy an investment, why do you want to buy in Brisbane? What are your, what are your goals? You know, is that really the right solution or not? If it is, then, you know, do I have the, actually the, the the local knowledge to be able to help you do that or should I refer you to somebody else? You know mm. what I mean? Those questions and those conversations probably don't happen enough because I guess if you've got a scarcity mindset, you are going to grab, you know, and I get that people starting out, but I mean, mm. I also understand that there's not enough people giving advice. There, There's too many, I think, buyers, agents just giving people what they say they want as opposed to really adding value. And that adding value is really to come in to say, you know what, that that doesn't necessarily line up with what your long-term objectives are. I love that point. I could name many clients over the years. I've said, I'm sorry, but we're not doing that. I don't want to do that. These are the reasons mm. why I don't believe in that strategy or why you're not ready or why it's not suitable for you. And rather than just take your money, that would be very yep. easy to do. I could give you what you want. I just wouldn't feel good about it. So I don't want to do it. I want you to change your circumstances or think differently about how you're going to do this or go to someone else who specializes in that and can deliver it for you. And the interesting thing is a large percentage of those people remember Mm, um, yep, the advisor that absolutely. says, I don't believe in this and I'm not going to take your money. And they come back and you can reprogram them. Absolutely. Over the longer term, we even yesterday I talked to a client out of buying this place in Canberra and, you know, it's, it wasn't sitting comfortably with him the whole call. I was, you know, felt like I was on the back foot sort of, you know, giving me a bit of information and he still didn't want to sort of digest it. And, you know, at the end of it, I think he still probably wants to do what he wants to do. But I know that, you know, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night knowing that I didn't say that, have that conversation with mm-hmm. him. Yeah. And then, you know, that in time that'll sink in, whether he buys it or not, but in times it'll sink in and you'll be like, oh, actually that conversation with Chris, actually I'll refer to Chris or I'll, you know, I've got, and then I'll come back to him at some point. And so there's, a, there's actual tangible benefit just being, you know, true and, you know, that trusted advisor to people because it always works longer term for, for you and and your clients. I mean, just on Reba, Kate, how, what, can you kind of give our listeners a bit of an understanding of what it is, you know, how long it's been going, you know, why does it matter? Yes, with pleasure. Reaper's been around for 21 years now. So we've got a, a collective of, of people who started it out back then and some of them are still active members. And Reba started as, well, a, a few guys saying let's all, you know, get together and, um, and support each other and hold up, you know, some industry values and it grew to a, a big brand now and I, I love the brand and it's a, a collection of people that all contribute on a voluntary basis and there's around 90 of us nationally and we've got what we call affiliates too so um, Reba friends who are members as well who aren't necessarily buyers agents they might be offering services that buyers agents use and um, and we all collectively believe in making sure the consumer is protected and that Ariba members' advice and and activity is independent and we've got a a number of um, requirements for anyone who's wanting to join and be a member to make sure they fulfil and that also includes having two two existing members sponsoring their application, so endorsing them coming on board and they have to be fully licensed. They have to have been working in the industry for a certain period of time if they're full members. We've also got a provisional membership that, um, looks after people that have been doing it for a little while and are, are still mm. wanting that mutual support around them. And we've also got a learner category for people who are new to the industry. And it really is about supporting each other, upholding values, getting the word out there for consumers and and having some really good articles and, and media releases and information to aid consumers when they're looking at, at getting professional help. Probably the one thing that you didn't mention, Kate, which I'm sure you will, but is about the exclusivity requirement. Uh, do you want to elaborate on that? Yes, we can only take payment from the consumer, so from our client. We don't take any kickbacks or 
payments from any other source. And the reason why this is an important thing to state is there are people out there who call themselves buyer's agents or they suggest they give free investment advice. And the reality is that they're working for someone and they're selling stock off a stock list. So they've got a, a lineup of properties that they've been tasked to sell and they might be a diverse lineup or they might be identical units in a high-rise building or whatever they could be. They are pitching that product to the consumer and a lot of them do it so well they'll make the consumer feel like it's tailored advice when in fact it's not they're, they're trying to find a, a buyer to to buy their stock and they'll call their services either buyers agency services or investment advisor services or whatever they want to name themselves and the way that they get paid is directly from the developer or the builder so they're getting their their sales commission and it's generally a significantly higher commission than than a regular real estate selling agent would get for an established property. The more unscrupulous ones will actually double dip. Yes, they will. And so we have we have an issue out there where consumers don't actually realise they're not getting free advice. They've got an enormous price put onto the top of the existing price because there's, there's got to be margin there for the developer and for the salesperson. And so they're buying an overvalued asset that's not necessarily good. And I, I won't be as bold as to say that they're all bad assets. I think a lot of them are, but the point is they're paying an inflated price because mm. the sales commission is wrapped up yeah. in it and they think that it's free. And there's so many things that can go wrong here. If the bank disagrees with the price that they paid and feels that it's too high a price tag, the valuation will come in short and that's anyone's nightmare because you might not be prepared for that and sometimes when it's off the plan and it's got a a long period between signing the contract and settling it, it can be years. And so if you're suddenly facing a situation where you bought something that you thought was worth $500,000 and it comes in at four you've got to find $80,000 differential and that's even if the bank still wants it. So it can cause a lot of stress and the issue with brand new and off the plan is, is when the valuation is finally done, it's all very dramatic and happens at the very end and sometimes you've got 14 days to settle. So if the valuation comes in short and you've got 14 days to try and find $80,000 or find another lender, that's anyone's nightmare. So that's one obvious issue but the broader issue is the performance of the asset. So if it was recommended to the client because it helped someone get their sales commission, that's not the same as recommended to the client because it's a superior property and it fits their profile. So if they've invested in this thing, and then it underperforms and five years later they're looking at the latest bank valve thinking I wasted all of that opportunity, I waited two years for it to be built yeah. and I've held it for five years and it's worth what I paid for it or worth less. What a horrible lost opportunity scenario for that buyer who could have bought a, a highly performing suitable asset seven years prior. Is there any sort of regulation around the use of the word buyer's agents or advocacy with the individual sort of state-based sort of where you can only use it if you only offer sort of fixed payment or no kickbacks, I guess, or is it literally they don't want to go anywhere near that sort of conversation? Sadly, no. We're we're pushing very hard for it, Chris, and Mm. unfortunately regulation varies and regulators aren't always able to jump onto these things, whether they're under-resourced or they just don't understand it or it's not as big a priority as other issues that they might be facing. Mm. It's a constant battle and I think that communities out there like Reba, we've also got Pippa out there, we've got Pika. I think they're making some really good noise and bringing it to the forefront of consumers' awareness is, is really critical but unfortunately property investment advice isn't isn't a regulated space unless you're talking about a financial product like self-managed super funds and others so we we can only be really overt about independence and and what we call property advice it's interesting you say that Kate because in New South Wales our uh, licensing requirements changed it took quite a lot long time and they made a good show of consulting the industry and I was actually back when I was vice president of Reba and I went in dual capacity as a sort of as a practitioner but also as a as the a Reba rep and I put forward a submission to the panel the educational panel that was actually looking at uh, reworking all the uh, licensing requirements and I was horrified because my pitch has always been buyers agents actually need to know more than a sales agent and 
one of the reasons for that, there's a number of reasons, but one is because the sales agent is just helping somebody get rid of what potentially was a mistake that they made under their own steam. Whereas a buyer's agent is actually advising them, hopefully not to, but potentially to make that mistake. And so if the buyer's agent is completely unaware of the mistakes that can be made with property, and let's face it, there's easier to make mistakes than it is to avoid them, then then if they're unaware of that, Mm. then how can they possibly do their job properly? And there is no training around this. This is all learnt on the job by those who are interested and not by those who are not interested. And so... Uh, you know, I made this big presentation to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Oh, you're kidding me. So people actually lose money on property. Oh, 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 this sort of stuff. Yeah. And I came away and I read the report and recommendations afterwards. It was like one line referring to buyer's agency. It completely missed the point that, you know, and then ultimately basically they they mm. actually just dumbed it all down and said, oh, no, they, they just need the same license as sales agents. And, and in fact, they re- reduce the amount yeah. of specialization uh, specialized licenses and simplified the whole thing mm. and dumbed it all down and that says to me very very clearly that these people even some academics in there just do not understand the complexities of this mark this industry i couldn't agree more veronica it's absolutely true and down here in victoria our full license course is 26 modules it takes quite a while i took time off work to do my qualification for for being able to apply for a full real estate agent's license and one of the modules incorporated buyer's agency, which Mm. doesn't say much. I think I spent more time learning about property management and trust accounting, which was interesting, but that's not a critical part of my day-to-day dealings. And I, I absolutely agree with you. And what it says is getting a good quality buyer's agent really relies on someone having had good quality training from someone who absolutely knows their craft inside out, which Mm. really points to an apprenticeship, so to speak. And I I look at the people that I've worked with and and helped into the industry that I so love, and I can honestly hand on heart say the smartest, savviest, most capable person who loves property and is great with all of the analysis and, and the legislation genuinely couldn't do it with their training wheels off within two years. Absolutely agree. Yeah. Well, this is one of the issues I see. It's a very low volume, high cost. It's hard to sort of start uh, out as a buyer's agent because it takes years to sort of get the trust. The consumers already don't really trust buyer's agents because it's not as prolific out there. You know, it's very hard for us to sort of some clients to convince them to, they'll get a lot of value out of buyer's agents because it's a lot of do we really need it and the cost and it's also a lot of time to do it well. So you have to charge a high fee. Yes. It's really hard for buyers agents to sort of start, but there's like an explosion of what I see, new businesses, buyers agents have been doing it for, you know, months sometimes and they've gone on just starting their own business and there's really no education out there as well. So besides that apprenticeship option, is there any good options for for buyers agents to sort of get up to speed besides just working under great buyers agents? I think there are some pathways that that can get you there, but ultimately you'll still need a bloody good mentor, whether that's your boss or someone who is dedicated to your success. And I'm happy to talk about my own pathway because I remember wanting to do it and there's no job ad and there's no university course, there's no (laughs) academy. And I, I mean that seriously, like a learning academy where you're learning the craft of buyer's agency and all of the risk that that entails and how to how to understand investment grading and and the process. So Mm. I I was a a sales agent for some time, which gave me exposure to the the process that vendors go through, the negotiating process, the contracts. That was great. That was one little bit of, of intel that I could pop away in my memory, but I still needed more. And I, I was a mortgage broker for four and a half years and I, I felt that that gave me a lot of mm. intel. It's still not, it, they're not the only two pathways. I've seen valuers do it well. I've seen accountants do really well, but you still need that overall buyer's agency assistance. And, and if you've come out of a role where, or you've had experience in high level, fast paced customer service where things can go wrong, all of these things can be helpful, but you still need a mentor or a great boss to help you pull it all together. And let's face it, you can have all of those attributes, but hanging a shingle out the front and taking on a lease and opening the front door isn't 
enough to run a successful mm. business. You actually need to have a business head on your shoulders as well. <laughs> Is there any legislation around mentoring at all? In mortgage broking, you've got to have the first two years, you've got to be signed off by someone. But yes. the problem I see with that is that a lot of there's, you know, mortgage broker coaches, I guess, who can sign off. And so they could be signing off hundreds and hundreds of, of brokers. So they're actually getting, you know, someone really guiding them or they're just getting someone to sign off on their sort of uh, annual declaration. So is there any sort of, you know, mentoring obligation for new buyers agents at all? No, there's not, sadly. In in Victoria, we absolutely need past, we, we need experience under someone, but you can circumvent that if you're getting an interstate license that doesn't require that and you can get mutual recognition, which is a, a key issue that's that's being tackled now and we're, we're having some success in some of the states that have, have had a, a few more applicants going into state. <laughs> but in terms of getting a good mentor, I mean, we, we have mentors within REBA for people who, who want to reach out and have that support. And I've been a mentor. I've absolutely loved it. And I'm, it, it's the most rewarding thing. I've, I've helped two um, REBA members now. And seeing them grow their confidence and think critically about situations and understanding their niche and pointing them in the right direction for, for further education and for, you know, rounding their skill set, all of that is is really exciting for me to do as someone in the industry who loves, mm. you know, paying it forward. But it, it's not all that easy to find a mentor and you've got to make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons. If, you, if you're genuinely wanting to be the best that you can be, ticking a box isn't going to do it. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. You mentioned at the start that there's some wrong questions that people ask. I mean, we get it too all the time. You know, what's a great place to buy and or I want to buy this and what do you think? <laughs> what's some of the questions you think that buyers or people coming to you should be asking you to get a real or other buyers agents to get a real good grasp on whether they should engage you or not? I think being open about what you're trying to achieve from the onset and bear in mind in, in a situation, a market like this, buyers agents, the good ones are really busy. So you've, you've got to start with some really succinct points and it might involve emailing through or when you put mm. your online inquiry through, if the buyers agent asks you to fill out a form, do it properly, fill out the form because they'll take the time to look at all of your metrics and, and background information and loan approval status, everything that they've asked for show them so that they can have a chat with you about what might work for you. Mm. And sometimes the information, it's really, it flows really easily. I've, I've had clients who have given me the full picture and I've thought, oh, bang, here we go. This particular scenario for you is going to be great. Others, I've looked at them and said, well, you've actually got a lot of options here. You've got a lot of choice. You haven't got any restrictions with the metrics that you've given me. So let's chat about what will make you feel comfortable and confident and proud and they might have different areas they can think about or different dwelling types and then taking the time to explain what the the experience and the results, mm. whether it's rental yield, vacancy rates, the type of tenant they can expect, the work they're prepared to do. I think the most important thing is that you've got a buyer's agent who's asking you specific questions, mm. actively, attentively listening and taking the time to give good advice. If the advice flows too quickly, the alarm bells will be ringing for me. Yeah, there's a difference in advice and a sales pitch, isn't there? Yeah. I think a lot of buyers, reach, particularly in the current market, when, when things are tough out there, they reach out to a buyer's agent as being the magic pill. You know, the, it's like a last resort. I, I've failed. Yep. I can't do it. And so that's one of the reasons they, they hang their hat on that idea mm. of off markets because they think that's the solution. Okay. Mm. And then who gets more off markets? Buyer's agents do. And it, so it's sort of a natural way of thinking and it's completely it's it's logically illogical if that makes sense yeah and you know and a good buyer's agent will disabuse them of that notion pretty quickly but a bad buyer's agent or one that doesn't really care or one that's just into the sales pitch and they've learned how to sell the idea of buyer's agency rather than 
be a buyer's agent. And I think that's a big distinction that consumers need to be aware of. Mm. Those that sell the concept, sell the value proposition without really the substance behind it. And, th- you know, there's, there, there are, you know, that they can go and do paid courses to learn how to do that. And I've heard the pitch, you know, it's, yes. it's, uh, it's empty, but it's very compelling to a buyer that's, you know, that is in pain and hasn't been able to do it under their own steam. And that's a scary thing. I, I absolutely agree. And if it comes down to understanding whether you're getting a sales pitch or whether you've got someone sitting on the other side of the desk who is attentive, able to help you and wants to help you, if you're in doubt or you don't feel that you can tell the difference, understand a bit about some of the past clients they've helped. And one question I don't particularly like getting from someone who hasn't really engaged any further than an initial inquiry with me is, can you give me three names of past clients? The short answer is no, I won't do that because this is just a discovery call. You might not even want to work with me, but I'm not bothering someone to to chat to you about the Kate Bacos experience. I'd prefer that they looked, you know, on my gallery page or or asked me for some examples of properties that I've helped clients purchase and then ask me for the context behind it. And maybe say to your buyer's agent, tell me about this particular acquisition story. I mean, obviously there's personal information they won't divulge, but they might say to you, well, this, this client, I chose this property for them because, you know, these were the metrics and this is the background and this is how it went. This is how long they were with me. I think the more you can get a buyer's agent talking about past acquisitions Mm. and, you know, where it fits in with that particular client's metrics and and what they wanted to achieve, that will give you some insight into, you know, that person's specialisation and maybe their style. can also ask them for their KPIs. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a hard one, isn't it? Nobody wants a buyer's agent that, you know, has, has a, a whiteboard out the back with numbers on it. Yeah. And to run a business, you need one. I mean, and I often say this to potential client, well, I nearly always say this, is like, we don't, I know it sounds bizarre, we're a buyer's agency, but we don't have a metric for how many properties we buy. And in fact, in a way, I've almost not, not haven't formalized this, but we're closer to having a metric for how many times we've recommended a client not buy something. Yeah. That is that is more highly rewarded. Yeah. And you and I, well, all three of us will know we've we've told clients that we don't want to see them do something in the past. We don't mm. like that idea or we don't endorse it. We highly recommend they avoid it or they change their circumstances and get themselves purchase ready for the right kind of property come back later. And the ones that have hated that advice generally do come back. And the mm. ones that didn't have the advice and went, went ahead and did it, well, we, we get them back as well. And then we've got to fix up the mess or help them try and financially recover and rebuild from that mistaken property. And, and that's a horrible way to learn. But unfortunately, it's often what we see. Some people have to. You know, I bumped in and look, I have to say, I will say that REBA membership is no protection. It's not a It's not a complete guarantee that you're not going to get this because one of the things that I think that anybody looking to use a buyer's agent needs, needs to do is to really say, look, how will you advise me? How, wh- what, how will you tell me? How will you work out whether that's a good property or a bad property, whether I should or shouldn't buy that property, what price I should pay for that property, where I should my cutoff, how, what's your process for advising me on this stuff? Because mm. I bumped into an agent, a buyer's agent the other day, and this is a buyer's agent that I've known and respected. This person has been uh, a buyer's agent for a long time, probably as long as me, maybe even longer. And they are a member of Reba. And I bumped into, they were just having a bit of a friendly chat and they said to me, oh, we just missed out on a property last night and I'm quite relieved. And I said, oh, that's the client wanted to do something that you didn't recommend. And, and they said to me, oh, no, I didn't tell them I didn't like it. I, I sort of went along with them. I mean, how could I tell them that I was relieved given that I, you know, I actually encouraged them. And I, I looked at this person, I'm like, how can you even say that to me? Like, like that's mortifying. I'm glad they didn't buy it as well. But the fact that that you just went along with what they wanted to do as opposed to really just stepping in and guiding them, and even if they do want to do it, that's fine, but they've got their eyes wide open and if you then regret or then you're happy that they didn't get it, you can then honestly say, look, I'm really relieved for you. I know there's a better one for you. And, mm. and it was just a really interesting exchange and I, and I think that it just reiterates for me that that buyers, when they're looking at buyers agents, they really do need to tap into that whole critical thinking side of things and, and be critical thinkers themselves as to how they're, they're 
they're assessing the answers. Yeah. I think for me, that's the intangible things through the process. And that's why your client stories are quite powerful, Kate, when you, it's not about the actual individual client, but it's how you guided them and your words, uh, Veronica, advised them at certain points. This is what we need to do, or this is the strategy we're going to employ, or you know, this is your alternative option. So going through the process, because what I find with, with clients who have used buyers agents, a lot of the time it's not actually the the final thing securing it. It's about giving them the confidence to maybe look at different locations or to stretch into different type of property or to maybe not even pursue the property they're in love with, which is what you're talking about there, Veronica. Mm. So it's sort of those intangibles through the whole process, which is the hard thing with buyers agency because it's hard to sort of formalize that to new buyers because they want those tangible. How much money are you going to save me? How yep. much time are you going to save me? Yeah. How, what's your guaranteed success rate? Yep. So, I mean, how do you sort of, you know, uncover those intangibles when you haven't gone through a service before? I think if, if the consumer has had a bit of bad luck or they've been looking for a while or they just haven't had success or they've had a bad experience in the past, you've got to be prepared to talk to your buyer's agent about that. And I had someone mm. I chatted to on Friday and and I, I said to them, tell me where you're up to. Sometimes that's my opening question, you know, what are you up to? Mm. Oh, you know, we've been looking since October. Okay, well, something's already wrong, absolutely already wrong because if you've been looking in Melbourne since October, that's too long. It means that you're either looking in the wrong locations, you're not handling, you're negotiating or your agent interaction well or you're consistently missing out because you're aiming for things that are outside of your budget. There's a lot of reasons why that brief could be going wrong. You might not be responsive enough, fast moving enough, but if if you're having that kind of issue, asking your buyer's agent for a magic list of off-markets is definitely not the solution. <laughs> and I, I had this, they were lovely, but they said to me, how many how many off-markets have you done in the past year? How many would you do as a percentage? How many would you get each mm. week? I said, you know what, happy to answer all of this, but we're, once I've finished answering this, I'm putting off-market discussion right off the table because <laughs> I can already tell you now, your issue isn't lack of off-markets, your issue is that you don't have a realistic and feasible brief. And I'm going to spend time with you doing that mm. and it will be the hardest conversation we have in our in our working life together. This first conversation, you, you'll feel pretty sensitive a, about some of the hard truths, but what we're going to do is get you a feasible and realistic brief where you can hit the ground running in the areas where there's more listings that are appealing and within your price range. We don't necessarily want an enormous yeah. abundance, but we want enough so that every weekend you're having a, f- a fruitful experience and you're shortlisting some good properties. <laughs> I think that really that's that chance of success of what you're trying to achieve because people think it's possible. So it might be a 5 or 10% chance that something's going to come up in that market in your budget that ticks all your boxes, but it's only 5 or 10% chance. And so you're waiting for this sort of needle in a haystack, but at the same time the market's moving. So that chance is dropping potentially by the week. And also your chance of success in other suburbs is also dropping. So if you don't switch strategies early, you know, six months later you go, oh, well, that chance of success is zero. We've given up. By then your chance of success in other areas. So I think that's that where it's really powerful. It kind of stops people sort of, you know, looking for this sort of, you know, needle, I guess. A hot market is not time to do needle in haystack. If it's, <laughs> if it's a, you know, a static market and it's doing nothing, for sure, hang out, wait till that amazing property comes up. I remember a couple of years ago having a couple from Sydney who wanted to buy a, a specific type of property in Melbourne's very inner north and beautiful, beautiful area where the average block size wouldn't be more than 300 square metres. So we're talking, you know, super inner city, Fitzroy North, Carlton mm. North. They're gorgeous areas but what they wanted was something massive and they had a specific character and um, type of build in mind. They had an array of streets and I just thought, yeah. oh, my goodness, this is like <laughs> once a year it comes up. Mm. So I said to yeah. them, I'm not going to be actively sending you, a, you know, a, a report every week with all the properties I've shortlisted. You'll hear from me when it comes up and I'm telling you now we'll be best friends by the time this is over because it's a once in a year type property and for them in that particular market and with their rationale and, and wish list, that was fine. They understood this could take us a while and it did. And as long as but, they got the budget. Yeah, they had the budget. Mm. We just knew that the product was really exactly. rare. Yeah, I've had clients like that too. When that property comes on, a client is one of those properties you were talking about a few years ago in the inner north of Melbourne 
And yeah, they came around, they got so excited, they had a huge budget on it and they missed it. And yeah. so they, they thought they were ready to go, but then they still haven't bought again because they still are waiting for that dream property. And so, yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Even if you've got the budget and there might be someone with a bigger budget and so you could be waiting another year for it. So mm, yes. you just got to be very confident, uh, you know, can that can you afford to wait that long, you know, because that could be your budget could get blown out if you have to wait another year. I, I often talk to people about having a deadline and plan B. Mm. Yeah, and it's not a bad idea in a market like this, that's for sure. So what about some of the conflicts that, you know, I see with, with buyers agency where, you know, there's certain brackets of briefs, so having two clients at competing budgets, you could yes. have a conflict where you have property management in-house. I think that's a another one which I'm a little bit concerned, encourages people, you know, potential buyers agents to encourage you to buy an investment rather than a home. And what are some of these sort of conflicts that you think it's important for you to have those discussions with real estate, how you buy agents? I think it's a great question you ask, Chris, because without anyone enjoying conflict or wanting to capitalise on it, it can strike often. And a buyer's agent's worst nightmare, aside from something going wrong, is getting a phone call about a property that you're already representing a paying client on from another paying client. And mm. you've got to have really robust systems to get around that. And that means being very, very clear at the onset what the bounds of your exclusivity is to each client. And if that means you dish out a number of suburbs. I've seen some buyers agents limit the number of suburbs that they'll offer to a client. Uh, you've got to have really clear price mm. boundaries and everything is fine until someone's situation slightly changes. Mm. They yeah. you up, they're all excited. Oh, I've had a budget increase. Well, now <laughs> they might be bumping into someone. That's not a great outcome and you've got to be prepared to tell them what they don't want to hear, which is I'm really excited for you and I'll accommodate it where I can. But the other client in this boundary they get priority and everybody handles it differently, but it's never a nice conversation, that's for sure. And again, property management, that that could be a risk of conflict for some. I think it's a risk of having your attention pulled this way and that I, I don't want to do it. And it doesn't mean that people who, who do offer it don't do it really well and, and have a great mm. in-house value add. But you know, with every every offering, there's always a consideration. And another one is is the percentage model. I've seen flat fee versus percentage fee, and and clients asking about the perverse incentive associated mm. with that. And again, I've seen buyers agent activity around capping or, or clustering the percentage model fee, where they might say, well, between this and this, it's a set fee. And, and yeah. there are ways to to ease your clients' minds and, and be, I think transparency is the key. You've just got to put it out there. And if there's any time where you're starting to feel, ill, this is not comfortable, just talk about it and, and be, you know, make sure that you've got direct dialogue going with your clients so that everyone's on the same page. But there, there are conflicts Often, you know. Vendor advisory is another one. Well, yeah. And, and what about your favourite real estate agent? You know, we've all got real estate agents mm. we like. I've got real estate agents I've had a wine with or a coffee with. Does that mean that I'll be different as a negotiator with them versus someone else? Mm. It, it's something that you've just got to be really cognizant of. Well, that's right. It's actually having these conversations up front. I mean, I've seen, I refer to great buyers agents that use percentages model, but if that is a, you shouldn't be ruling them out as an option because they use that model, but you should be having the conversation with them and just getting rid of that sort of concern that if it is a big thing that you're worried about and say, look, can we just go a flat, flat fee around that number? And I'm sure those great buyers agents would be willing to do that. It's just having these, having these conflict sort of discussions up front rather than you know, letting them sit there through the whole process and at the end still be unconcerned of whether that actually impacted what they actually recommended to you. I don't know. You know, with the percentage thing, we, we don't want to talk about this too much, but, of course, I charge a flat fee. I always find it interesting that those that use a percentage model but then say, oh, oh but, but I'll cap it. And it's like, well, why don't you just charge a bloody fixed fee then? Mm. You know, and, and the very fact that they'll only do it if the potential, if the buyer actually asks, you know, I think that's actually a bit of a sign that they're not that upfront. You know what I mean? Like, so personally, I just think you're either, it's either one or the other, you know, like just mm. <laughs> anyway, that's a side issue. It's not that important. What, what other questions? Because I know, Chris, you're the one with most of the questions here. Um, obviously, me being a buyer's agent as well, and obviously being a member of Reba, I'm taking a bit of a, more of a backseat today. I mean, what do you think about the sort of the scalability of buyer's agency? I mean, this is something that I get concerned with. So, you know, when we're referring to buyer's agents, we use probably you know, over 
maybe 30 or 40, I probably recommend over the country, but I'm very nervous referring to big sort of buyers agencies. <laughs> what do you think about the, the scalability of buyers agency? Yeah, I, I think this is a, a good one to talk about. And you've got to be really confident with the person who is looking after you. And the same goes for property management teams where you meet the fantastic BDM and they're dazzling and they're, you know, really salesy and switched on and they give you heaps of confidence. And then they say, your property manager will be in touch with you. You've got to be prepared to ask who your person will be before you're signing on the dotted line yep. because it's it's such an enormous amount of experience that they have to bring to the table and, and the trust is sky high or it needs to be. And, of course, I always remind myself, you know, with every single brief, I've got to earn that trust but you've got to earn it pretty quickly because you're starting on day one looking at properties and making recommendations and, mm. you know, discussing things. And so I think the most important thing is that you have confidence in the person that you're getting advice and assistance from. You can have a really good, honest chat with them. So if you're feeling like they're defensive or they're not giving you the time of day or they're not wanting to have that open and honest conversation, they might not be the right fit for you. So first and foremost, big firms have some amazing people in them. And I'm, I'm a big believer though, it, it's the person that you're dealing with, not the firm itself. There's another aspect to this though, and that is that really and truly there's only a very small percentage of property that is really worth buying. Yeah. Particularly for dealing with investors. Yeah. And uh, often the bigger buyers agencies are in very investor focused. And the more buyers agents you've got on, the more mouths you've got to feed, then the more property you've got to buy. And the minute you get over a sort of a critical point, there's not enough property out there to buy that fits a criteria of investment grade or even B, A and B grade. You know, you you have to, mm. in order to keep those doors open and that scalable model, you've actually got to start buying crap to, to you know, keep cash flow. So for me, when I when I see, you know, I think hear that question, is buyer's agency really scalable? That is for me. I, and I've made this mm. personal choice in my own business, of course, that I know the good deeds will only ever be a very bespoke boutique business because of that exact reason. If I want to scale, that's where Home Buyer Academy comes into it. We can scale education for first home buyers, you know, because they can't generally afford buyer's agency. And, you know, Megan and I can scale that service and that education and that information. But as a buyer's agency, you know, unless you're going to have a lot of, lot of locations so that you can, you know, take out or extend that idea of buying yep. only A's and B's in all locations, you know, but if they're in one location and there's a lot of buyers agents, that's a, that, I think that's a real warning sign. Look, stock shortage is always a warning sign, especially when you've got lots of hungry people um, handpicking through specific types of stock mm. and fighting for it. The, the risk that you have is that prices will be pushed up for that that element of, of property or you'll, you'll start <laughs> seeing some average acquisitions, you know, average quality. Mm. And I, I think it's very important to factor in time into a search. If you have a few misses, like I said earlier, yep. 25% success rate at auction, that means I'm not getting them first time round. <laughs> only one mm. out of four. And it means that I'm with the client for longer yep. and having to sift harder and move faster for for getting properties with less competition on them. And that comes at a price because my my client journey time is much longer in a market like this. Yeah, I mean, one of the issues I've seen with those bigger buyers agencies, a lot of them aren't even getting mouse to feed. They're getting, you know, if they don't buy, they're on commission only. And so the buyer's agent who is using the brand to and getting given leads from that brand um, basically has to buy, otherwise they're not getting any income that month. And so that's one of the sort of issues I, I see sort of playing out. And I think you're right, Kate, who... I am signing up to this mortgage broker that's got buyer's agency. Who's the actual buyer's agent I'm going to be working for? And are they the best possible option for me compared to all these other buyer's agents in the market? And I think don't fall for the sort of the person branding out the front because you actually deal with the person who's doing your actual work. Sort of an issue there as well that I sort of sometimes see is that mortgage brokers, for example, are getting in-house buyer's agents buying all over sort of Melbourne or Sydney, et cetera. What are some of the risks or the challenges of, of that model as well? <laughs> well, <laughs> I haven't heard of this, off. by the way. Sorry. So I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the ch there's lots of challenges in a big business, full stop. And 
you know, you, you get more diversification with your advisors and hopefully the advice isn't diverse, but it depends on the training and, and the amount of time they're spending together. And you've also got to look at individual experience in areas as well, because there's no buyer's agent around that could just wake up saying, I'm going to cover all of these suburbs and do it really well. You've got to learn yeah. those suburbs. And my suburb repertoire grew from a much smaller base you know, 11 years ago to what what it is now. And mm. you've got to know the streets and know what they feel like to walk on, not just drive through. And that, that takes a lot of time. I really prided myself on that. And there's suburbs I'll say no to because I don't work in those suburbs. So I think the risk with borderless is if someone isn't truly uh, intimate with an area, could they be picking the best streets and understanding what that demographic and that market particularly wants and responds to? Because if if they're not nailing it, then you might find that someone with a more intimate knowledge could have done a better job. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's basically what we you know I start to see. I see uh, our mortgage brokers, for example, one partnering with one buyer's agent because they've you know that's all the effort they've gone to to build a network. Or they get even worse, they get a phone call from a developer and then they start referring on to it. Or they start to bring buyer's agency in-house and so it's a formalised partnership where it's under the same brand and they just start channelling all their clients to one buyer's agent in a certain city and that person's never going to be the best buyer's agent in all the areas of that city. And so I think you've got to be careful how you meet that buyer's agent and just be careful that, you know, basically find your own avenues where you're doing your own research so have you got a property done for us, Kate? Yes, I have. And it, it relates to your questions earlier about off markets and understanding the background to an off market. So any, anybody can get off market activity and off market opportunity. It's not just restricted to buyer's agents. You've got to be able to decipher whether it's a good one or just an opportunistic one. So for the questions that, that you'd be asking, it should be, you know, how, how many a buyer's agent fields and actually goes and inspects because you need to know how critical they are and you've also got to be prepared to understand a bit more about off-markets and, and why they're not the holy grail when it comes to buyer's agency. Have you got like a particular story that you could share where someone's done that around off-markets that has ended up in, with a bad result, I guess? Wow. Um no, because I I tend not to like I wouldn't let anyone get a bad result, but um, I I know that some people will. No, hold what about out someone who didn't them. use you? I've had, <laughs> <laughs> I've had people come to me because they've latched onto an off market and they're having a really hard time pulling it together and actually you know getting getting the vendor to agree and sign the contract. And so by the mm. time they come to me, it's a little bit of a spider web and. I then have to step in and introduce myself and, and work through what's gone wrong. And invariably, they've got confused between the concept off-market and pre-market. And agents mm. are very, very good at, mm. at selling off-markets. I've seen the text that gets scattered out to all of these desperate buyers saying I've got an off-market. All they're doing is showcasing a property that's already signed up to go to auction and before the board's even up, before the photographer's through, they're running people through for two reasons. One is to get a gauge of value mm, because people mm. will start throwing offers at them. And yep. the other one is sometimes it's to try and entice the, the vendor to go with them. So they might do it without actually having an exclusive listing. Mm. But more often than not, it's to really help them with price setting and, and to see if a really crazy, you know, Powerball-style offer tumbles out because <laughs> if someone wants to help the vendor win Powerball by making an obscenely stupid offer, well, job done. Agent will take that commission. Thanks very much because it's just a, a real anomaly result for the property. I can give you a perfect example. This happened last Saturday, right, off-market slash pre-market in Sydney. And so we had our client lined up to go through the first time we could get access to the property. It's just been fully renovated, beautiful terrace. Go through, it's swarming with buyers that I'd seen at an auction the week before. <laughs> it's just someone, yeah, yeah, clock you, clock you, clock you. My client likes it. Uh, we download a, a contract in the afternoon and so start talking to them about our process and they know the process because we have gone to auction for them before and not bought. So they know the process. So we, we're all gearing up to, to get kick that off. We get a call from the agent 
the very same afternoon. Within it would be within two hours of the inspection. Yeah. <laughs> um, saying someone's coming in with a, an offer on a contract with a sixty-six W. Now, so in New South Wales, that means it's unconditional. And in order to be do to be able to do that, they've got to either have their lawyer on hand yeah. or they're a lawyer potentially. So, and that's fine. You can do that. We can do that too. But there's no way on earth without actually physically inspecting this property, you could know 100% you want to go for it before you even go through the door. I mean, I guess maybe it's small percentage, no building and pest inspection, no, mm. no due diligence checks, nothing. And we're ready to buy today. That's it. One inspection. And so I said to my clients, well, look, you know, we've got to do a placeholder if we want to get into this, but there's no way in a million years that I could, I could recommend you do the same thing. And they do have a lawyer friend who's a, a lawyer, and so they could have done it. But I, I just said, I can't recommend that. If you choose to do that, then fine, I'll help you do it. But I, I couldn't recommend that, really. And I think that we should be able to make an offer conditional and, and move forward on Monday if that if your offer's good enough. So we made one offer. There was a, a number of people fighting for this, but there were the people that had actually bought it, so they went ahead. They had to put more than $500,000 on top of their offer. All right. Which was more than a million dollars what the guide was. More than a million over the guide. And only in Sydney. <laughs> only in Sydney. And they oh bought goodness. it. Now, you know, oh. maybe they had done, maybe they'd anticipated that they were going to love that property. Maybe they had done all their due diligence before actually setting foot in the place. But I somehow doubted a bit. No building inspection had been done. I know that for a fact. Mm. So there's a good example of somebody who's just bolted into an off market slash pre market. And, you know, Paid big, big money for it. Yeah, if you've if you've got the budget, and well, if you've got the offer that takes a an early pre market off the market when the vendor didn't need to sell it quickly, you've, you've got to really be clear that you paid <laughs> the right price. Yep, and that no due diligence whatsoever. Scary, none, really, just mortifying. You also need to be certain that's what you really want and you're already emotional because you just you haven't even slept on it, right? Mm, yeah. So, I mean, if you've been in the market for a long time and you really know, but, I mean, I know you both have probably seen lots of properties that have been renovated are actually some of the worst building and pest reports. Yeah. And so something freshly painted and looking amazing isn't a guarantee that there's no issues with exactly. the building. Is that what you say? Yeah. Sometimes it, it's a higher chance that there will be issues if it's freshly painted. <laughs> <laughs> Covers a multitude of sins. Thanks so much for today, Kate. You know, obviously, it's a massive conversation about selecting a buyer's agents. Reba's a, a great starting point, but it's all about doing your due diligence, asking the right questions and uh, you know, making sure that they're the perfect person for you, not just the easy option. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on the show and I've got so many incredible colleagues around the country that, you know, do give each other's names out and, and refer each other, which is a wonderful mm. thing to see because they're respecting specialisation and and, yep. um, and knowing what a, a good character match might be for that particular client. But all I can say is that there's a lot of information on our, our site about choosing a buyer's agent, about understanding all, all types of, of facets to the exercise of interviewing buyer's agents. So, yeah, I appreciated the opportunity. And we will put the link in the show notes as well. Thank you. That's a good point around buyer's agents referring to other buyer's agents. Mm. Absolutely. I think that's a real good sign because that's what, you know, buyer's agents I'll refer to is that, hey, no, I don't want to do that area. Why don't you use so-and-so? And I go, you already know them. And or can you introduce me to this other buyer's agent you're working? And I think that sort of collective knowing where your patch is and and then referring out is a, is a good sign that you're a top buyer's agent. Absolutely. Thanks, Kate. My pleasure. We want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's elephant rider training is... I think just flowing on from Kate's discussion around buyer's agency and good ones, I mean, we're very selective on who we prefer to, but what we really want to see is they've been doing it a long time, obviously, you know, five to 10 years, hopefully. They're the business owner. I think that's really important. They know what they're good at, the patch they're at. They're not a big business. I prefer to the, the smaller ones that, you know, because I think it's a very personalized service. And, you know, that to me is a, a or if you've got all those ingredients, local knowledge, you've got real focus on a certain patch, you've been doing it a long time, you've got strong uh, advising sort of tendencies and think yourself as a trusted advisor, they're for me the most important things because then you're going to get the local knowledge, the local relationships, and then it's all about then, you know, getting a, being really 
working with the buyer's agent, having a good brief. So I think a lot of it is how you work with the buyer's agents as well to get a better result. So it's always about sort of getting that super local specialist buyer's agent, hence why it's impossible for us to partner with one buyer's agent. We refer to lots of them in each city, not just one buyer's agent per city or per area, for example. Yeah, totally agree. And I think that's important that it's a partnership. You know, sometimes people would come to me and they'll say, oh, well, what happens if I find the property? And I'm like, well, we're not in competition with each other. You and I are linking arms and we're trying to get you where you want to be. And so it's not a race. It's not trying to prove that we know better than you or anything like that, Mm. or we can get it faster, or we can find the off market that you can't find. There's, There's none of that sort of magical thinking around it. It is literally that Together, we are going to help you move forward and in, in a yep. really safe and protected way. And I know that you are definitely a, um, an advocate for using buyer's agents and I know that you encounter a lot of people that resist. When you look at those sheer numbers of 70,000 sales agents in the country, maybe 1,000 buyer's agents in the country, not even 10% of those actually are REBA members and that sort of says something. It's no surprise, I guess, that still the majority of people will actually go and not be represented. Mm. And I think the advantage that you gain is not so much, oh, good, I've got a buyer's agent, that's my secret weapon, I'm going to win this property because of that. And I've given many examples in the past where my clients don't buy the property because they've got a buyer's agent. And that's the secret weapon. You won't buy a dud as long as you've got a good, you know, good experienced buyer's agent with all that local knowledge and great critical thinking. You won't buy a dud. And mm. even whether you overpay for a great asset, that that yes, you don't want to do that. But that actually is not the main objective here. The main objective is buying the right asset and working yeah. out the point at which it is overpaying. Yeah, exactly. And overpaying, you know, may mean you get that property rather than waiting three six mm. months or having to swap suburbs or whatever it is. So, yeah, the price you pay is not nowhere near as much as important as the asset you buy and there's always a limit to, to that conversation. Please join us for our next episode. Chris is interviewing me all about property negotiation. So we're doing a negotiation masterclass on how to deal with agents, questions to ask, when to make offers, how to make offers, etc, etc, etc. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.